It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. Hello, my name's Jess Phillips and this is Yours Sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words to paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Dame Marlene Phillips is an Olivier Award-nominated choreographer, presenter, a theatre director and a dancer. She has choreographed music videos for Tina Turner and Duran Duran and also films such as the 1982 film Annie. In 2002, she choreographed the Commonwealth Games opening and closing ceremonies and spent four years judging Strictly Come Dancing. And today I'm excited to talk to her about the letters she would send to three people who mean the world to her. So, hello Arlene. This is just, I can't tell you what a pleasure this is for me. I am a strictly super fan and I mean, I cannot believe that I'm talking to you. So it's very exciting for me. How are you? I'm good. I'm very good. Busy, busy like everybody post-pandemic. It's ramping up, isn't it, in a way that I felt like I was getting a bit of an ease in and now it's just gone totally back to hour after hour after hour after hour and I'm a bit like, oh, I need my work-life balance back. But obviously the sectors that you work in are totally decimated during the pandemic. It must have been dreadful. It was. It was really, really heartbreaking. And even now, every show's on a nice edge. You don't know when somebody's got Omicron and they're off. And, you know, shows are just balancing, rebalancing, trying to stay open. So although on the surface it's like, oh, everyone's okay now, the reality is nobody knows quite. And certainly in the world of theatre, it's there's a certain insecurity in all of us 
Yeah, theatre, it did seem to me, like, was just so badly served and badly hit without... And it's already, like, you know, it can be a tricky a tricky business for those people. You know, you're not talking about people earning huge amounts of money, they're in and out of work, and that level of insecurity for those people, it just seemed dreadful. It's tough. Yeah, it is tough. So many freelancers that had to stay afloat somehow. I won't make this a party political broadcast, but, yeah, it was not great for freelancers. It's so great. And they, listen... I'm I'm not going there, but it's so easy, isn't it, just to debate politics? No, we're not. <laughs> no, I've had it all day. I, I, what I want is not to talk about politics. So what we're going to talk about is letters. Are you much of a letter writer? I used to be a massive letter writer. Now it's generally, if I write, it's scribbled in a card. Yeah, I feel like letter writing has truly gone down the pan slightly other than cards. So do you have any like really treasured letters that you have kept? I have the most treasured letter written by my mum when she was in hospital. We were living in Manchester as a family and she was in Manchester Royal Infirmary where they discovered leukaemia which really wasn't a disease they knew very much about. And so when she was in hospital, even though it was only a bus ride away, she would write letters. And my most treasured is a letter and a recipe. It's funny, I I lost my mum to cancer quite some time ago now, but I have a letter from, the only letter I really have from her is a recipe for how to make Christmas pudding. A recipe, it matters, because that's what mums do, is hand those things down. Yeah, and, you know, my mum cooked the family. You know, I can't remember. I think I remember when I went out to the first cafe to get a cup of tea, you know. I I think I was 12 or 13. You know, every meal was either at home or my grandma's or an auntie's. My children have no concept of this. Like, I say, we used to go to a restaurant once a year. Like, if that, and you would, and it felt like me, I probably wasn't very far away, but it felt like we had to go in the car for a long time to go to this Chinese <laughs> restaurant. And it was like a massive yeah. deal that we went there, or go in a taxi. Yeah. Like, people didn't <gasps> yeah, travel in taxis. My children are like, Mum, can you send me an Uber? Mum, can we're just popping down to, you know, they just they eat out like two out of three meals. They are living a charmed life. Yeah, or takeaway. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, that's one thing somebody said to me about the pandemic. They said, we think that there was a lockdown, but actually it, it was just uh, people with some money having people with no money deliver food to them. I was like, yeah, that, is, that pretty much sums it up. That pretty much sums it up. I mean, yeah, everything used to be cooked. And so, yeah, that. what is the recipe for that your mum sent you? The recipe was to make pancakes. <laughs> I hope you use that recipe because... Always, yeah. All I can say is that making pancakes seems like a very basic thing. It's actually quite hard and I always mess it up. Yeah, yeah. You have to give one to the pan god. Yeah, always. You have to have one rubbish one. What is that? That must be a thing. Why does that happen, that you have to give one pancake to the god of pans before you can actually eat any? Actually, yeah, because you, you, you're you lousy at making that first one. 
Yeah, give it away to the the pan gods. Do you have uh, any letters from people, like, you know, dignitaries or very, very famous people? So you're a dame, aren't you? There ain't nothing like a dame. So presumably you got a letter from the Queen. Absolutely, yes. And I never thought about it. You know, I never think about those things as as being letters, you know, from those kind of very, very special people that you meet or know that so many of it was a written letter. Actually, the Prime Minister and the and the Queen, still, if they are going to communicate with people in the community, actually, they don't do it via email, that it is still very traditionally written. Like, if you're invited to something at a palace or anything, you always still get this, like, gilt-edge card. Like, it's very traditional that you get a letter about those things. Yeah, and, you know, or if I've had congratulations from a number of MPs, it's written. MPs are, we, we love to write things down. It's like a currency in politics is that if you, it's the creamy paper with the portcullis on it and your signature at the bottom, there is something really visceral about. So if, you know, even if it just says, I've wrote to the council and they're going to fix your boiler, there's just something about a constituent receiving that in that sort of parchment envelope with the portcullis on and the queen printed on it that makes them feel special. And that's what you want to do. So yeah, we still, we must be the last battle of institutions who send everything out by letter. Yes, and my partner's mother, who's 93, she's a letter writer. Every gift that she's given, every response is a handwritten letter. And I think that's an art, you know, that actually is disappearing, really, truly disappearing. I look at my children's handwriting and there is obviously, there can be no premium put on handwriting anymore if my children's handwriting is to anything to go by. Do you remember when you had to like do the practice? Oh, not... lines. Lines, doing the I and then L and then, yeah. I, L, I, L. Yeah. With your fountain pen. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even that old. <laughs> it's amazing how much it must have advanced. That's what you realise, how quickly... It has gone. Yeah, it's because I'm, I'm, I'm only just 40 and I remember having to do like the lines and lines and lines of fountain penning in my books. And at the top of and bottom of every single page in my school workbook, you had to do a line of practice. Then it made it like a pretty pattern. You had to do that. And that's when I was at secondary school. Like that was Tony Blair was the prime minister. And the, now, I, I mean, it's changed so vastly. And I think of people like your partner's Mom, and I think a lot about the Queen at the moment. And I think, God, imagine living through that vast change in society. Like, I stood in my kitchen recently and I just said to the air, oh, you know, play Let It Be by the Beatles, and it starts playing. And I thought, if somebody had told me as a child that I would be able to do this, to stand and say into the air, start playing music, and music would start playing, I would have thought you were absolutely mad. So what must it be like for the Queen to, like, have seen so much change? It's, It's such a change. And even between my daughters, one who's just turned 40, one that's 30, the gap between them in 10 years, it's just like sweeping along and sweeping away everything that 
certainly I knew and I grew up with doesn't exist. No, it absolutely doesn't exist. Like, my children have no concept of not having a map with you at all times. Like, you know, like, they're like, well, how would you find your way? And I, do you know what? I can't even answer the question because I don't know how I found my way because I certainly wasn't walking around with an A to Z. No. I just had common sense. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I found yeah. my way places, but I did. I moved to different cities and somehow found my way around them without walking, looking at a phone constantly. No one looks at an A. No one looks at an A to Z anymore. What's an Do A to Z? They still exist. <laughs> you can still buy them. You know, at motorway stops, the A to Z still sits there. Oh my gosh! I mean, it is. I I do really feel that Google Maps has ruined my dad's entire life. In that we all used to have to ring him and be like, Dad, what's the best way to, how do we get to Carlisle? And he'd be like, well, you don't want to go on that road at this time. And I feel like that and Google have eliminated my dad's purpose in life of just telling us random facts and journey times. But yeah, they have no idea that we used to just do things without it and make appointments and stick to them. Totally. It's crackers. So I have asked you to think about three different people that you would want to write letters to, to express your, well, your fondness and love for them. So the first one is just somebody who means the world to you. So who would you pick for that? I think the somebody that means the world to me has to be somebody's. Could not pick one. It has to be my two daughters. My two daughters are my world. They really are. I've got Alana. Roxanne, who's the oldest, and Abigail Lingen, who is the next one down. And so they're 40 and 30, and there's there's quite a big gap in between them. Yes, then. there is a big gap from different fathers, and both considered late babies. I had my first daughter, Alana, when I was 36, and was called a geriatric mother. And my second baby at 47, Abby, when I was certainly called an alarmingly geriatric mother. I mean, even by modern standards, 47 is, that's quite old, isn't it? Now, even now that women have babies much later in their lives, 47 is still, was there quite a lot of judgment on you for doing that at the time? Um, there was a lot of judgment. For me, it was a complete surprise. I thought it was the menopause. <laughs> I, had, I didn't even imagine I could be pregnant, even when I had morning sickness, which I hadn't had with my first daughter, Alana. And it was four months before I thought something odd is going on. So I was. Well, you wouldn't at 47, would you? You would never think you were pregnant. No, I didn't even dream it. I didn't even imagine it. That must have been such a shock. <laughs> yeah, it was a complete shock, but a gift. I felt like this baby is there for a reason because it was the last thing I even imagined or thought of. And to get pregnant when I hadn't got pregnant the, you know, the entire 10 years, I just couldn't think of a more wonderful, beautiful gift of having a child at that age. Wow. 
I mean, I, I had my babies when I was quite young. I was 23 and 25 when I had my children, which nowadays is considered like being a pram face, like being a teenager or something. That um, I'm certainly much younger than most of the parents in my, my older son's class. They were all in their 30s when they were having their first children. Um, but I remember my mum saying to me when I went and told her that I was pregnant, she said to me, I said, but I'm just not sure if I'm ready. And she said, well, that day will never come. <laughs> there is no perfect time to have a baby. There is no, it's always going to be brilliant and it's always going to be really hard and there's no perfect time to do it. So you might as well just do it now. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the same at 47 as it is at 22 when you find yourself pregnant. There's no perfect time. There's no right way of doing it. No, and... And the strangest thing is you mentioned school because I think people really think about the age, whether they're the youngest mum or whether they're the oldest mum, they think about how you'll be perceived at the school gates. Yeah, totally. That is a major thing that oh, people don't really talk oh, about. Yeah. Major, major. I mean, I was, I really didn't think about it with Alana you know, I didn't, you know, they told me I was geriatric, but I didn't think or feel it. I certainly did at 47. And my biggest fear was taking Abby to school and everyone thinking you've come with your grandma. <laughs> and I was really surprised that when I did arrive at the school gate, there were a couple of older mums. And in fact, at the same school that Abby went to, Alana was at that school, and there was a mum who also had a kid in Alana's class and one coming in Abby's class with this huge gap. Um, so although she was younger than I was, there was a big gap between the children, so that kind of gave me confidence, and there were a couple of older mums. And interestingly, there were a couple of younger mums. Now, I usually dress in quite a crazy fashion, um, not suitable for my age, but I don't care. And there were a couple of mums who had sort of long skirts on and a sensible jacket and sensible shoes and, you know, had kind of no interest in what their hair looked like and looked older than they even were <laughs> so somehow we all matched up in one way or another i think that the pressure of the school gate is, is is not written about enough but that is true it's so true like and my husband felt it as well as one of the only dads i mean now it, it does seem much more 50 50 if you when i drive past schools my children are too old for that now but my husband was like he, he felt a different sort of pressure being a dad on the school run like there were like different cliques and things playground politics for that 10 you only stand there for 10 minutes the politics worse than Westminster is what I'm gonna say yeah it's the hardest it is the hardest in your life and yes you're right there weren't many dads and actually even when Abby was at school um her dad and my partner Angus was often the one that took her to school and back. And even then, you know, Abby in the 30s was one of the ones who went with the dad. Now there's almost 50-50 split. It, is, it feels much, much, much more equal nowadays when I drive past schools. So what do they do then, Abby and Alana? Alana was in musical theatre. Then she became a makeup artist. And now she is a mum to my two incredible 
granddaughters, Lila and Emmy. And you know how you always want your children to find joy in their lives, wanting to get up and in the morning to do what they do. And she loved being in theater and she loved being a makeup artist, but where she's found who she is and everything she is and what she wants to be is being a mum. Oh, how lovely. I spend my whole life arguing uh, for better rights for women at work and things. And uh, people often accuse me of, oh, you know, well, what about people who, who want to be what they would describe as just being a mum I think it's the hardest job in the world I was not very good at it it's much more, I, I'd rather get to work is all I'm gonna say it, I got to sit down and drink a cup of tea at work um, but actually I just want a world where every woman has the choice of whether they do it they stay at home or that they are able to work and I just want a choice-based system Um, and if it's happier for people to stay at home and they are love it and want to do it then that's what I want for them Um, but yeah it's it's got to be so that everybody can afford that that to be the option so it must be lovely watching your kid be a mum. It's wonderful watching her be such a good mum. You know, I wish I was the mum. I was a working mum. I wanted to work. But just seeing how content she is to be at home with them is just just incredible. And you say about wanting people to have the choice. And I think... The best thing one can have in life is to get up in the morning and spend the day doing what you want to do, which is why often I feel retirement also should be a choice. People who want to work, who are forcibly told to retire, who don't want to, let us have an older workforce who want to work and let us have a younger group of people who want to stay at home feel that's what I do. This is my job and I'm content to do that. We all interfere in what everyone should do. My my husband would retire now if he had the chance, like, you know, it, whereas I will never retire. I would just, I would cease to exist if I didn't have, I remember that just after the first time I was elected, I went on holiday with my girlfriends and I, I, I literally like took loads of work to do because I can't relax unless I can work. <laughs> like me. <laughs> I'm like, I must do this piece of work because otherwise I won't be able to sit by the pool for an hour. I like it. I like going to work. I like it. That's what I want to do. So uh, people should definitely, um, and actually, if you look at wage gaps for women, the worst, uh, the gender pay gap is the very worst for older women. It's literally like they are pastured out as if they are invisible in the data. They are invisible in the activism. They are just pastured out. It's absolutely, women over the age of 50, it is is absolutely despicable levels of discrimination in the workplace. Absolutely despicable. Yeah, I know. And when, you know, even often, you know, I would have long discussions about this with Harriet Harman because it was, yeah, it was, you know, with women, 50 plus, desperate to be seen, to be noticed, to find a good job. And yet, as you say, there was nothing. It's like, dismissed from society just you're out 
Harriet once told me that when you're young as a woman, you're not taken seriously, you're flighty and you're silly. When you're in the middle portion of your career years, you're having babies so people think you're distracted and then you're old and you're invisible. She said there's like no perfect time to be a woman. She was like, you are never the perfect person for the job because there is always some bloody reason why you can be ignored. Yeah, in the great words of the brilliant Harriet Harman. But yeah, so that's Alana. So she's got two children. What about Abby? What does she get up to? Abby works in fashion retail. Abby, I call my beautiful butterfly, whereas Alana is strong and go-getting and quite feisty. Abby has this center of calm and she wants her life to be calm. She wants her life. It's not that it's got to be easy, but she doesn't like conflict and she's happy in what she does. And I love just who she is, the way she thinks, the way she feels, her warmth, her smile means everything to me. Were they ever a pain in the arse when they were teenagers? Oh, <laughs> I can't tell you what I went through with both of them as teenagers. <laughs> you know, I thought, you know, it was tough being the mother of Alana as a teenager, but I never thought that would happen to Abby, who seemed to have, you know, golden shadows floating behind her. Oh, no, the golden shadows turned to dark sparks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just think that any teenager with... They all go through something where essentially they have to pit themselves against you to find their own identity. Absolutely. They are. Absolutely. I respect it, but it is a pain to live with. Yeah, yeah. It's tough, really tough times. But, you know, through it and, you know, the point when, oh, my gosh, particularly with Alana, I would lose it. You know, the screaming and the chasing and the... Um, I think I was better with Abby. I probably wasn't. But, you know, through it all, I I knew in my heart I loved them so much and I needed to find a balance between this rage that sort of tore through me like a tornado. It's phenomenal how you could love somebody so much and want to scream, get out of my sight, I never want to see you again. Yeah, (laughs) it it is. And it's heartbreaking. And those are the things you remember as you get older. And if I was writing a letter right now, it's, you know, it would be to say, you know, forgive me for my rage because I love you both from the bottom of my heart and have always done so. So please don't remember the screaming. Remember the good things. Well, you're, I mean, that is a lovely thing to say to your daughters, a lovely sign-off to a letter. But do you remember the rage moments with her? My mum never raised a voice. My dad did. My dad was the one that, and, it's our, and I remember every moment. I remember every argument. I remember every fight. My mum never did. My mum was the kind of mum that she would put, your arms around you and you felt the world was safe no matter what troubled you that made you feel like the world was going to be safe and you could go to school the next day I bet you if I was to talk to your daughters I bet you they would say the same thing about you (laughs) I bet you they would yeah that's what you always hope for 
Yeah, I bet you that they won't remember the rage. I bet you they will think, oh, you know, she was a great mom and she made us feel safe. Even, you know, she was best dressed on the school run. <laughs> the most outrageous, with the most outrageous <laughs> coloured hair, but hey, <laughs> fun mum. That's what they remember. So your daughters, so they're your, they're your mean the world to you. How would you sign off yeah. a letter to your daughters? Um, if I was writing a letter to my daughters and I was signing off, I would say, my darling girls, remember the good things, the beautiful things, the things you love. And whatever you do, don't think about the rage and the fights. It's unimportant. It doesn't matter because throughout those rages, I loved you from the bottom of my heart. So the next person is a person who is no longer here. That doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who has died. It can just be somebody you might have lost touch with. So who would you pick for that? The person who is no longer here is my mentor in dance, Molly Malloy. Molly Malloy, what a name. Great name, isn't it? <laughs> um, she was an American dance teacher. Now, when I was... 21, I went to London just as a visit from Manchester to do dance classes. And I went into one class with Molly and fell in love. Fell in love with the style, fell in love with the beauty and the creativity of this very lyrical modern American jazz she was doing. I had a teaching job in Manchester and I'd come down for a week to gain experience in other styles of classical dance I was teaching and I went to myself I want to do this forever I, I cannot bear the thought of going home so at the end of the class I spoke to Molly and said that was the most amazing dance class I've, ne I've never known anything like it uh, I don't understand the style but I want to study and she went oh that's great you were probably the best I've ever seen um, in class at picking up the style and I'll give you a scholarship you know if you're here in London, I'll give you a scholarship. And I said, no, I'm not. I live in Manchester and I've got to go back. And she said, well, what are you going back to? I said, well, I've got a teaching job, a dance teaching job. And she said, oh, well, why don't you, can you stay in London? I said, no, I have no work, no money, nowhere to live. She said, well, I know someone who wants to live in and they'll pay and you'd find a place to live and you could study. And I went, I can't go home. I can't go back to Manchester. And she said, well, it's up to you. And I don't know, something in my brain went, if I don't take the chance on this now, I will never have what I want in my life if I go back home. My father was living alone. My sister and my brother had married. They were living away from home. And I thought, I can't leave my dad. And I, on the spot, thought, well, what if I had the courage to say that I, I'm not going back? I'll talk to my dad, who was horrified when I did. Horrified. I spoke to the head of the dance school where I was teaching at. I said, I'll pay you back every penny. And I took a job in London and I found a place to live because the live-in job 
actually was with Ridley Scott. No um, way! Yes. <laughs> um, meant that I could stay in London and everyone back in Manchester was sort of sobbing, crying, and I, I just said, I have to do this and you'll understand one day. And Molly became my mentor because I knew how to teach. She let me teach some of her classes. She was everything to me. She became my closest friend, my ally, the person who set me up, have my future career that everybody knows um, as a choreographer. Everything from her. It was her gift that she passed on to me, her gift of dance. I bet you she invested so much time because in that moment you were brave. Like that was a really brave thing to do. If somebody is going to up their entire life on a feeling, I I would invest in in that person. Like I would be like we get people, young people who come and say, "I'm really interested in politics," and the ones who just turn up time and again, you 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 start to invest in them because you think these people they this matters they feel it in their hearts and there there is something about hearts over heads that matters I think when you love the thing you do did she know while she was alive how much she meant to you I I don't think in many ways she knew I loved her because I was flying she had moved back to New York and I was flying there and back when she was ill And so she knew I loved her and she knew I cared about her and I was close to her and we were so close. We shared places to live. We shared lives. But in some ways, I became the person that she had always wanted or had the career that she had always wanted. How that was because I decided to do something mad and crazy and build this dance group called Hot Gossip that literally set my career alight. And it was almost by accident. It was just picking those best people from class and looking at the world outside and doing something fearlessly. But it gave me a career that just exploded. And I always think that somehow there was not enough I could do to pay her back. It's actually really hard. I mean, going back to, we've already mentioned her, Harriet Harman. I spoke in the chamber because her husband died very suddenly a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I spoke at his memorial in the chamber of the House of Commons. And I, his her son got in touch with me and said, thanks for, for very much for your words. They were kind and everything. And I tried to get back across to her son that this that his mum and his dad, by virtue of support that he'd given to Harriet, like, they changed my life, they changed my children's life, they made the trajectory of my life. And I can't say it enough because, A, people can't hear it because it's embarrassing, people can't hear it. And, and when you say it, it sounds small. And it's not small. It sounds like when I say, well, she changed my life. Like that's, that's like a throwaway thing that people say now and everything is awesome. And like my dad is like, you realise awesome is bigger than you describing like whether you like this pudding or not. Like awesome is yeah. meant to mean like All God inspiring. powerful, yes. <laughs> yeah. And when you think about the people, the things that they have given you and how like literally my children's successes in life 
are thanks to some things that people get. Like, it never ends. You can't verbalise it and you can't get people to understand how much you owe them. Like, there's a debt yeah. and that is hard. Yeah. it's hard to verbalise, yeah. I think. It's hard to yeah. get across. So there's a debt, yes. Yeah, a debt. That's how I, I, I constantly like, I've got a debt to you. I mean, Harriet Harman always asks me to do things, so she tries to repay that debt <laughs> with tasks. But, um, yeah, there is, it's like you're feeling indebted. Um, now, I'm going to circle back and say, tell me about Ridley Scott. <laughs> oh, he, you were living with Ridley Scott. I was looking after his little boy. Yeah. I see. Yeah. And 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 the the most important thing is that Ridley Scott changed something in my life because I grew up really without kind of any money, you know, bordering on poverty kind of life. And now I look back because I I did a TV program where I went back to the house, Ridley Scott's house. But to me, this was the grandest house I'd ever lived in. In actual fact, when I went back, it's a it's actually a semi in his sheen, which was <laughs> which was gorgeous. But you know, to me, it was like I just couldn't believe it. This house was like everything, and everything in the kitchen was perfect. Every dish, every cup was lined up. All the cleaning products were lined up in heights. And for me, I used to look inside these cupboards at the formality of them and dream one day of having all the glasses, the say, uh, all from one set lined up in a row, you know, not everything, you know, nothing matched. It was just perfect. And I've, and I live that and I always keep everything in those kind of orders. Is it Ridley Scott from Hartlepool originally? Yes. Or yeah, no, yes. he's, he's, yeah. yeah, he's from the North yeah. East originally. North yeah. How, um, how brilliant. I mean, I, I mean, I've heard a lot of people talk about how Ridley Scott has inspired them. My son is at film school. He is obsessed with Ridley Scott. And so he talks about like, so that I've heard a lot of people, never have I ever heard anybody say, Ridley, what Ridley Scott gave to me is the desire to have matching glasses, which I think is absolutely brilliant. And I also made many commercials with him and he taught me everything about film and, you know, the frame and looking in the frame and making sure every little thing is what you want the audience to see. Nothing more, nothing less. What a stroke of luck it was that day that you went to Molly's class and ended up living with Ridley Scott. What a, stro- what a stroke of total serendipity. It's remarkable, really. So how would you sign off your letter to Molly? Dearest Molly, I always want you to know you gave me everything I am. You are my treasure and I will live my life always thinking of you. We'll be back for Arlene's final letter after a short break. In the meantime, why not check out another podcast from the team behind yours sincerely. Ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender as we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's beating heart, search The Moon Underwater. Or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. So the final letter I've asked you to think about is to somebody who hasn't got any idea how much of an effect they've had on your life. So who would that be? The person I think doesn't realise, truly realise how grateful I am to him is Andrew Lloyd Webber. I first met Andrew in the very early days because my best friend in dance school, my lifelong friend, Kathy Argent, she was called Kathy Lawrence then, had married Rod Argent and was living in London with Rod. And of course, when I arrived in London, I met up with Kathy, who was also living there. And it's like I found my best friend again. And she introduced me to Rod. And Rod was working with Andrew Lloyd Webber on Variations, the wonderful piece of music that he wrote with Julian Lloyd Webber playing the cello. And so I got to know Andrew, who had invited me to Sidmonton, his home with Rod and Kathy. And when I created Hot Gossip, I um, invited Andrew to come and see one of their live shows at a place called Country Cousins. And Andrew just fell in love with Hot Gossip, watched everything on television, thought they were the, the newest, the greatest, the most kind of outrageous dance group ever. And so he kept coming to see the group and we became quite close and friendly uh, during this time. And of course, he then met 
Sarah Brightman, who was in Hot Gossip, and they became together. So I became even closer to Andrew, who I would visit on a regular basis. Then in 1979, when my daughter Alana was born, I went off to do a film called Can't Stop the Music with the village people. I was pregnant and I was on a hiatus making the film, going to have the baby, and I was, it was all fine. It, everything worked out. Had the baby, got, a, you know, was given by the incredible producer, Alan Carr, a Winnebago, a nanny, a guru, so I could do breathing exercises, stay calm. Made the film while I was pregnant and post-pregnant, you know, over that sort of entire time. And um, I told Andrew at the end of 1979 at Christmas, he invited me to Sidmonton to visit and brought the baby. And I was chatting. This baby was actually sort of born when, you know, I was making the film. And I was roller skating because the producer had decided he wanted a roller skating number. I was seven months pregnant and he said, we'll find you the best teacher. So there I was learning to roller skate, seven months pregnant. And Alan came in one day to see what I'd done and screamed, take off the roller skates. I haven't got you insured. A a tiny little story told to Andrew, Christmas, 1979. In 1982, he called up and said, do you remember that story you told me about roller skating? Do you still roller skate? And I said, well, I can. Why? He said, I'm going to do a musical on roller skates called Starlight Express, and I would like you to choreograph the musical. My life is always one of chance, of, of, of different things connecting from one to the other by a story told to someone. Yeah, that is brilliant. And Starlight Express really gave me the introduction to a a lifetime in musical theatre. Any story that has, I was seven months pregnant and roller skating with the village people is literally, I mean, that is the greatest story I have ever heard. But I have an Andrew Lloyd Webber story and I noticed it, it, funnily enough, similarly, like a random phone call where I noticed that just a couple of weeks ago, I noticed in the press that it had come off and this was a phone call from like five years ago. So Julian is the principal at the Birmingham Conservatoire. Yeah, so I've had dealings with them around Birmingham education and musical education in Birmingham schools. And I'd met very, very briefly Andrew Lloyd Webber at something I can't even remember. And then I got this random phone call and so I said, it's Andrew Lloyd Webber's people, they want to talk to you. And I was like, oh my God, they're going to they're gonna ask me to be in a musical. This is amazing. <laughs> uh, that, that was not what it was. I have no musical talent. But I am the Member of Parliament for Malala Yousafzai. I'm Malala Yousafzai's family. And so he was ringing me and he was saying, "Can you? is there any way that you can uh, put me in touch with Malala Yousafzai's family? So I did that. And then I noticed in the papers just last week, some, this was like years later, that Andrew Lloyd Webber on supporting refugees with Malala Yousafzai and they're gonna they're doing like a thing about it, a musical thing. And I was just like, no way, that random phone call yeah. that I'd forgotten about. It was like I'd like stored it away. Andrew 
Lloyd Webber and his random phone call. And they did the um, special performance of Cinderella. For the refugees, yeah. yeah. Isn't that, yeah, it is. It's this crazy world, this bonkers, you know, my life has been bonkers very often because of these odd connections. It must be odd going from, like, living in, you know, sort of, poverty essentially it humble a humble beginnings to the next week you're living in london and going you know you, you're hanging out with people like andrew lloyd webber did you ever feel like you had to sort of channel shift like at all or did you always just feel confident and i never felt confident i never felt that i could really believe what i did it's like you know when i got the letter to say i was becoming a, a dame I thought, I can't join that society of people I don't belong. I think I've always felt like I don't quite belong. And I think when you come from a background, when you don't know where your next penny is coming from, you don't know how life is going to pan out, you know, because of how hard it is. You never quite feel like you belong to the club. I think that that is definitely true, but it's often the thing I find that it, pushes people to have the fight though the sort of fight in them you have to like perform better in order to to be equal so you're like i'll show you about it so how would you sign off your letter to andrew lloyd yeah. webber andrew you have given me a crazy wonderful extraordinary life that started because of a pair of roller skates i have to thank you from the bottom of my heart for making my life. Oh, I just absolutely love that somebody's first thought was insurance when a seven-month pregnant woman was on roller yeah, skates. Yeah, the first thing he said. <laughs> Not how fabulous this is exactly what I want for the film. Get that woman off her skates. I haven't got insurance. Yeah. That your daughter... Alana must yeah. love that story. Oh, she does. I absolutely love a story about my mum roller yeah. skating with the village people yeah. whilst pregnant with absolutely. me. Absolutely. That's legendary. <laughs> that is a legendary yeah. story. Well, Arlene, your letters have been brilliant and beautiful and your life sounds just absolutely like it has been so noteworthy and brilliant and um, it's no surprise to me at all so thank you so much for coming and talking to me it's been a total pleasure thank you i've really enjoyed it and i have to say jess i so wanted to do this podcast with you i get asked to do very many but when they said jess phillips i went i'm doing it no matter what oh i love you Arlie. thank you so much for listening to this episode of yours sincerely with jess phillips if you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? You could also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.